thank you everyone for tuning in this evening. We did want to throw this disclaimer out before you actually listen to the episode this evening. We had full intent to start diving into the NL West. Our conversation with Marty York went a little over. We hope you stay on, listen to this podcast, and we'll be getting you that content next week. Cheers. everybody and welcome to the now ninth episode of the Los Chingones Baseball Club podcast presented to you by MLB Trash Talkers and Stadium Beer Bros. We've got a great one for you guys tonight. We've got a lot to discuss. We had a really fun one last week and uh, today I think is going to be even better. We've got uh, we've got quite a big group tonight. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go around the horn before we introduce our very special guest. I'm going to go ahead and bring him on shortly. Let's go around the horn. Izzy, you on? Hey guys, glad to be back. Uh, missed you guys last week. You guys had fun last time. Super excited to be here this week again. Waiting to talk about NL West baseball. Happy to have our special guest that we're going to have on today. Just happy to be here, guys. Beer of choice today is I'm having a Stone IPA. All reliable, as I call it. David, you there? Yes, sir, I am. How are you? Doing good, man. It's a pleasure to be on. I missed you guys the past couple episodes, but it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm just sticking to the all reliable Pacifico. That works. It works. It works. It works. <laughs> Jimmy, you on? Hey, what's going on, guys? I'm here to give you guys the over and unders for the NL West this week, and I am sipping on some Crown Royal just over ice. Keeping it there you go. adultish tonight. Yeah, adultish. Something that'll make a little bit of hair grow on your chest. I'm working on a, a Jack Daniels Tennessee straight right whiskey. I forgot to mention that at the very beginning. But it's great to have you on, Jimmy. You guys all got booze. I got to get something going here. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get my bottle of Termana tequila? I mean, I don't even need to pitch the rocks tequila. It's like he pitches it enough on his Instagram page. <laughs> <laughs> Who's next? Oh, we have somebody who has been with us for quite some time. Actually, her first appearance on the Los Chingones Baseball Club podcast. I'd like to introduce Val, or as she goes by on Instagram at Stadium Food Girl. Are you on? Hi, uh, yes. Yes, I am. How are you all? Good, I hope. Thank you for asking. So, um, yes, I am Stadium Food Girl on Instagram, or I also go by Val, and I know that you guys all introduced your drinks, but all I'm drinking tonight is a Moscow Mule, because I don't drink beer. That is my favorite drink. Thank you for being on today, Val, Stadium Food Girl. It's great to have you on. Let's go on to the next person. Ralphie, you there? Hey, guys. Hope everybody's having a great night. I'm really excited to talk some NL West, my favorite division in all of baseball. Sipping today on a St. Archer IPA, one of my favorite IPAs. Goes down really light. I love St. Archer. I love everything they do. And uh, their IPAs is actually one of my favorite. And I'm really excited about tonight, especially because of our guests and the NOS. Great to have you on, Ralphie. Uh, St. Archer, I do got to say, is one of my personal favorite manufacturers of beer. I like the Blondale and there's the, uh, the Hazy IPA. Go down smoothly. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Andrew, you on? Yeah, Ricky, I'm here, brother. Uh, another Thursday, another Los Chingonas recording day. Always the best day of the week. Uh, I'm sipping on in modern times, Fortunate Islands myself. It's the nectar of the podcast for me tonight. I'm ready to get going. 
and I, I do see that you're rocking the uh, the Los Chingones merch. So, oh yeah, uh, yeah. You shout know, out had, to you for the ref. As soon as that yeah. came in the mail, I had to throw that on today. So that's awesome. It looks good on you. Oh shucks. <laughs> hey, Sus, you there? Yeah, I'm on tonight, guys. How's everyone doing? Hope everyone's staying safe. What I'm drinking on are some San Diego local beers. Uh, first one is Cali Creamin uh, from Mother Earth, one of the best beers that they have. And also from Pizza Port, I got a Swami's IPA. And this is probably one of my favorite IPAs out there just because, I mean, it's from Pizza Port, classic restaurant, Mr. Pizza. It's amazing. And i um, glad to be on. Excited to talk about the NL West and for our guest tonight. Zach, did I bring you on yet? Not yet, brother, but we have, oh, my bad. <laughs> we have all night, man. No rush. Excited to talk NL West. Excited to get to pick the brain of our guests, but also excited to enjoy Wolf Among Weeds tonight. This is a beer by Golden Road Brewing. It's an Orange County-based brewing company. 8% IPA. Very drinkable. Excited for another night One of Los Chingones. One thing I do know about Golden Road Brewing is that it absolutely annoys the hell out of Angels fans when Dodgers fans take over that brewery. I know that one of their like tasting rooms being outside of the stadium. Is that right? Yeah, uh, there <laughs> and uh, Carl Strauss Brewing Company are like literally door to door. They're right across the train tracks from the stadium. So whenever there's a game, it's crazy, man. Time-lapse video, you'll see empty restaurant at four o'clock and by 5.30, it's just like three or 400 people in there getting those uh, happy hour beers before they go buy the $16 beers at the stadium. That is wild. But hey, it's it's a prime opportunity for them. But yeah, man, it's great to have you on and uh, let's get this going. We have a very special guest on the night. We have Marty York, most famously known for portraying Yeah Yeah in the Sandlot. Marty, you on tonight? I'm here, guys. I'm here. What's going on? Dude, we are ecstatic. Don't mind the oversized headphones here. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Hey, Marty, really quickly, I do apologize. I forgot to introduce our last person, Ryan. I apologize. Ryan, you there? Yeah, I'm here, but Marty's way cooler than me, so don't even worry about it. Um, <laughs> What's going on, Ryan? I got, some drinking, local, Ryan? I got some local San Diego water because I'm 19. I'm not going to get in trouble on a podcast. That's kind of dumb. I'm just really excited, and I'm a huge fan of the NOS and the Sandlot, so this should be a fun one for sure. Thank you so much, Ryan. Marty, we have a billion questions to ask you, but you know, taking a professional approach to it, we, you know, we're going to go ahead and just ask you one question each. But before we do that, some of the guys want to make a couple of statements to you, just knowing you know, that these guys, you know, they all grew up watching The Sandlot. So I can quote the movie like the back of my hand. So um, I know Izzy, I know you, want, you had a couple of words you wanted to say. Oh, uh, yeah. Just glad, Marty, that you're here. Thank you for being here, taking the time out of your day to come out, being on the show. Just want to say I'm a big fan. Obviously, like all of us here, we grew up watching The Sandlot, and we just love the movie in general. Just happy that you're here, and that's all I really wanted to say. Thanks, man. I didn't get to introduce my drink yet. <laughs> all right, let's see what you got. So I got the uh, I got the Termana here. I got the Termana tequila, and you can see the size of the bottle. That's all they have left is this giant bottle. I think that's the only size of the bottle they carry. I'm gonna take a shot for you guys here. Now the Rock says this is extremely smooth, so let's try it out here. Yeah, it's gotta be true then. Dwayne Johnson, the Rock. Yes, it is smooth. I normally, you know, if I drink Patron, I'll do uh, a cringe face, but this stuff is good. Well, salute, man. Salute. I know that one of the next guys. I, I know he wanted to say something. I believe um, David. Yeah. Hey, how's it going, Marty? How's it going, brother? Um, yeah, man. Just want to say, you know, I was a, you know, I grew up watching that movie, man. A huge fan of it, and you know, I just want to say I appreciate your work and the dedication on that classic movie, man. Especially like every '90s kid appreciates. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. And then lastly, Jimmy. Hey, how's it going, Marty? Um, I'm Jimmy, man. 
I just it's like everybody else, man, just want to thank you for, you know, making a generational movie, man, for generations to come. You know, I grew up on it and I've been able to share it with my children, you know, and my oldest kid. I mean, his nickname is after your name in the movie, man. So oh, cool. I appreciate that. And, you know, he loves your character in that movie. And it's pretty awesome to come full circle now, now that I get to talk to you and have you on the podcast, man. It's pretty awesome. And I thank you for that. For sure. Thanks, brother. So your kid, I said, what's up? Definitely. I definitely... This is the part, uh, Marty, where we, uh, I hope you don't mind, but we want to pick your brain a little bit. Like I said, we all agreed. We all just want to ask you a question, part of a Q&A. We're all huge fans and we grew up watching you. So I want to go ahead and give the floor over to Zach for his opportunity. What's going on, Marty? Thanks again for joining us this evening. My question is actually going to be not baseball related, not the Sandlot related. We have been sitting at home for two months in quarantine and I can tell that going to the gym, fitness, and being active is a big part of your lifestyle. What's it been like not having the availability to just go to the beach, to go to the gym whenever you want? Maybe you have your own setup at home. I don't know. Yeah, well, believe it or not, I mean, I, uh, I built a little gym in the backyard. So I got a lot of my stuff off Amazon and I got a lot of the stuff off like offer up apps. So I, I got like, a, I got the essentials. I got the, the bench press and I got a squat rack. Believe it or not, I built the entire thing in the backyard for under 500 bucks. I got some weights off a guy in East LA that was selling them. So, I mean, I got this right at the beginning of the pandemic because I had a bad feeling because people said that this was going to go on for months. So I was like, I got to prepare to not be able to go to the gym. So I had to set everything up. But yeah, I mean, I, I built the whole gym in the backyard for under 500 bucks. Where, if you don't mind me asking, where did your fitness journey start? At what point in your life were you wanting to get in the shape you're in now, which you look awesome, man. You know, you talked about Dwayne, the rock Johnson, man. You're like got the same body type pretty much. You guys are yeah. killing it. <laughs> I mean, I, I always like, when I was a kid, I was always into like the action heroes, the John Claude Van Dams, the Arnold Schwarzeneggers. I, I always wanted that kind of body type, but I mean, everything really started for me after Sandlot. I mean, it was like an upward progression of shows I was on in the 90s. So I was like, you know, on Boy Meets World, on Saved by the Bell, and a bunch of these other 90s shows. And then in 1997, I mean, I used to drive from school to Hollywood every day. So I'd wake up at like seven to go to school. Then I would drive from school to Hollywood every day. And then I would audition for something and I would come back and do homework till like maybe one in the morning and go to school the next day and repeat it every day. So one day I fell asleep at the wheel on a two lane road. I uh, crashed head on into another vehicle at about 60 miles an hour. The engine came through and shattered my legs and I was actually pronounced dead on the scene. I was airlifted to the hospital. I had lost a lot of blood. So they uh, actually called my acting coach and a number of other people to come and donate blood. And I was told I was never going to walk again. I was told a lot of stuff just because of the damage to my legs. So as I was in the hospital, I was actually doing a lot of physical therapy and I was working with a physical therapist that was, you know, in really good shape. It was like showing me different things like, you know, you do this and you work out with these and he really just kind of directed me towards fitness. After that, I started working out and I wasn't as serious as I was about it until like I was probably, I would say about 25, 26 is when I really started ramping up and meeting other people that worked out in the gym and I met a, a Samoan guy who was actually a bouncer at a local bar in my town, and he started uh, training me. And so, you know, I've been working out with him for a long time, and uh, that was pretty much, you know, how I got started in the business. It was a long journey, though. I mean, I've been doing this for close to 15, 20 years now, and it's, uh, you know, it's something that relieves stress for me instead of going the opposite way, which a lot of child actors do, which drinking, turning to drugs, things like that. The gym is my stress reliever. That's pretty crazy, man, especially the motivation 
I think sometimes the things that drive you can sometimes stem from something that can easily tear you down or easily, you know, make you go the other way. And you kind of took the negative and turned it into a positive. And I think that's an important life lesson for sure. So appreciate it, my dude. Cheers. For sure. Okay. Well, wow. Thank you so much for that, that Marty. I'm so sorry to hear that, but no, it's, it, it is super evident that you came out of that super strong and, and you are where you are now. So I know everything happens for a reason for sure. Um, but I wanted to get into the stadium tour that the Sandlot em- embarked on two years ago for y'all's 25th anniversary. Evidently, you know, it is a stadium tour that people seriously dream of being able to do. If I'm not mistaken, it was 20 stadiums in total, correct? Yeah, so for a minor league. I mean, we did everything. We did, uh, they broke us up in a, into individuals. So we did like a lot of the stadiums we did in um, groups of two. And then a lot of the stadiums we did together, but I mean, we did Dodger Stadium was the biggest one for us just because, you know, that's the end scene in Sandlot and the Dodgers went all out for that one. We stood on the third baseline where Benny the Jet Steals home. We had jerseys that the Dodgers made that had our, you know, our names on them. I actually have my jersey hanging on the wall back there and that's signed by all the guys. It's signed by the director. It's signed by Benny the Jet. That was cool because we got to actually run out of the Dodgers dugout. So the Dodgers announced us and we came out one by one on the field and took our original positions that we took in Sandlot on the Dodger field. So that was, uh, that was really cool. But yeah, we did, we did so many. I did Miami. I was actually in a suite with Derek Jeter in Miami when we did the Marlins because he's co-owner of the Marlins. They broke us all up. So two of the guys did the Braves. I didn't do that stadium. We did the MLB All-Star Game in Washington, D.C. The Angels was cool. The Angels actually had a pair of PF Flyer cleats that we all signed and they actually, it's in there. It's like in their... Uh, area where they have press conferences. It's in a glass case and we all signed the cleats for them. What was the most amazing thing to me about the whole thing was that the players' reactions to meeting us. Because you would think it'd be the other way around. Like, no, I mean, I was like amazed meeting guys like Trout and like beating the Dodgers and, and to have those guys be like speechless. Like, oh my God, is this really happening? Like we were standing next to Matt Kemp at the Dodger stadium. We're taking a picture with him. He goes, dude, this is surreal. You guys are one of the reasons I play baseball. So like to have athletes of that caliber say that, and then like it just snowballed. Like we just started seeing all these athletes. We saw Kobe Bryant saying that in his whole cartoon that he made called The Punies was based off the Sandlot. I mean, Kobe Bryant's like a hero of mine. So yeah, the, the, 20, uh, the 25th anniversary was definitely epic. It was better than the 20th anniversary. The 20th anniversary was much smaller. It wasn't really as cool, but um, the 25th anniversary, we went back to the Sandlot. They sold a thousand tickets and 3000 people showed up on the actual Sandlot field. We recreated the whole trash talking scene with Phillips. It was cool. It was definitely awesome. Were you a part of any of the stadium tours for minor league stadiums? I mean, I've done minor league stadiums. That wasn't really part of the tour. The tour with Fox was just the MLB stadiums. I've done minor league stadiums. I've done um, AAA stadiums. Obviously, the Bs. You know, we've done the Long Beach Dirtbag. We've done some other stadiums. How far is site for where Sandlot was filmed from the B Stadium, just to have an idea? From the B Stadium, it was probably, I would say, like 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, wow. Depending on okay. traffic. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I, I mean, you guys definitely did a lot that year. I, I definitely, you know, tried keeping up with everything that was going on. All the stadiums are being crossed off. Um, and like I said, it, it was, it's seriously a dream to even cross off a fraction of what you guys got to do in 2018. Yeah, that was so cool. I mean, if I could do that over again, I would. And, you know, we had, it's fun hanging out with these guys now that we're older because I remember all the off-camera stuff we did as kids. 
So like hanging out with these guys, doing major league baseball stadiums and stuff, it's like a dream to us because I don't think any of us really knew the impact that the movie had upon like people in general or even like these big baseball players. And, you know, we didn't understand, I think, until like we actually did this stadium tour and we were like, wow, people love this film. I think it really hit home, you know, when we did this, the power of Sandlot and uh, what it means to people. And just the fact that it keeps getting passed down from generation to generation and that it's something that will never die because these younger generations are watching it, their kids are watching it, they're passing it down to their kids. So I feel very blessed and humbled that we're part of something like that. Yeah, I mean, you touched on it how some of the athletes told you how much it meant to them. I'm 19, so when I was born, you know, Sandlot was probably about, what, seven, eight years old. So I grew up on that movie, too, and all my friends my age grew up on that movie. I posted you on my story today on Instagram, and I had tons of people, non-baseball fans included, saying, oh, my God, I can't believe you get to talk to him. So this is really cool for me, too, for sure. My question for you is, you kind of just touched on a little bit, but when did you know that you had a classic movie? You had this great summer filming with your friends. At what point did it hit you like, oh, this isn't just some random baseball movie. This is a legendary movie that's going to be talked about for decades. There was a, there was, there's a lull in time where me and the guys all kind of did our own thing. We went our own ways. We weren't really, the movie wasn't really talked about. And then once we did the 20th anniversary, it just became like a snowball effect. We started seeing our faces on t-shirts all over the place. We started seeing Funko Pop toys. We started seeing big posters and we started seeing artwork. And I think at the 25th anniversary is when we're like, wow, this is something that none of us expected. Because we did the 20th anniversary, but it wasn't as big. We went back to the Sandlot. There was a big crowd on the field, but it was like 500 people on the field. But the 25th anniversary was just like 20 times bigger. The Sandlot 20th anniversary, we didn't get to meet all these sports stars. When we met the sports stars and they were just like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> that's what we were like, okay, this is a, this is a big film. All right. <laughs> but I don't think it really hits you. You know, I don't think it really hits you until you actually see the magnitude of it. Hey, Marty, how are you? This is uh, Ralphie. And you know, I just wanted to say how much I absolutely love that movie. And I think you're just going to be hearing that throughout the whole night. Uh, you know, me, I'm a big Dodger fan. I was born and raised in LA. And uh, I think for me, that's part of the lore of the movie as well. You know, with Benny wearing his Dodger hat, uh, the L-Civ and Weenie Dodger dog comment. And then the ending of the movie, Benny ultimately becomes a Dodger. For me, it wasn't even just the movie itself. As a Dodger fan, I take a lot of pride in that movie because like to me, the ending is like, if you follow your dreams and you do everything right, yes, one day you will too be a Dodger. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I've always really loved that about the movie. The one question I wanted to ask you is throughout the years, you've seen a lot of polls and when they say like best baseball movie ever and people vote on it. Uh, I, every time I see that, the Sandlot's usually like one or two or just always at the top. The one question I'd like to ask you is, and if you could totally say the Sandlot, but uh, do you have a favorite baseball movie? For me, it's Field of Dreams. Feel the Dreams is definitely my favorite film, my favorite baseball movie. You know, we feel, obviously, me and the guys feel honored that a lot of these different polls choose Sandlot as the number one baseball movie. Uh, I like Major League Two, not Major League Two, the original Major League. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we feel honored, you know, that they choose Sandlot. We actually got to play on the Field of Dreams last year, at the end of last year. It was like me, Brandon, Chauncey, Tom was there. Uh, but we played against the girls from a league of their own. And we also had, they also had some major leaguers there, like Hall of Famers. So like Wade Boggs was there. I have funniest stories about Wade Boggs, man. Like that dude is insane. We got hammered with Wade Boggs. 
Ozzie Smith, uh, Reggie Jackson. I mean, these guys were on our team. So like Reggie Jackson was giving me like hitting instructions and I was actually surprised. We were probably the best players that were out there that day, to be honest. I think the Hall of Famer guys, they weren't taking it that seriously. Like Wade Boggs drank probably 85 beers before he started playing. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode, the, the Wade Boggs challenge where he drinks like 100. That's real. I mean, that dude really drank 85 beers. And we did karaoke with him at the end of the night. We went to a big bar. We did karaoke. But yeah, I mean, playing on that field was, was awesome. And, and seeing the house. And I mean, it looks just the same as it does in the movie, too. We ran out of the cornfield. There's actually a clip on my page. Wow. That's so cool, man. I never thought about this, how like just because of the movie you mentioned, you met baseball players, you've played on the same field as your favorite baseball movie. We've always wanted to do that. I don't think, you know, might ever happen. But uh, just the fact that you've met baseball players, you know, gone to all these different baseball experiences. I also wanted to really quick ask, like, who's your favorite baseball team? And is base like, was baseball a part of your life, I guess, before the movie? Or did it become more after the fact? My favorite team is obviously the Dodgers. You know, baseball wasn't ah, – there you go. That's, that's a cool hat, man. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as big of a part of my life when I got the film. You know, I was a kid from a small town in Northern California when I got Sandlot. I grew up doing plays, a lot of plays in, in Northern California. My parents uh, split up when I was about 10. My mom moved me out to Southern California. And my aunt was working in the extras, the field of casting, like the background people for movies. She got me a role as like an extra in a movie called Delirious with John Candy. He, he said some words to me that like made me want to do acting forever. Because I remember we were shooting a scene and I had a, I had like a scene where I was like standing by him or something. And then when they said cut, my mom's like, oh, well, I'm signed something for you. So I, all I had was some toilet paper in my pocket. Don't ask me why. But I brought it over to him and he signed the toilet paper for me. And uh, he said, I don't know why, but I feel like you're going to go far in this business. And he said... But whatever you do, just don't give up. Just keep going and just keep, you know, even if you get rejected, just keep going. Those words, you know, stuck with me my whole career. Going back to your question, baseball, it wasn't that big. And then once we actually started practicing baseball here in LA, that's when I started really liking to play baseball. And, you know, we practiced for three months in LA before we went to Utah to shoot the movie to make sure we were good enough. So when they filmed it, we looked like we were professional baseball players and that's all we did. So we just played every day. We got paid to play baseball every day for three months. It's funny, our coach was actually the, uh, was actually Squints Paladores' grandpa that says forever, forever. That was actually our coach. So he coached us and we got really good. And there's a whole other backstory to me being cast in the movie. I don't know if you want to go into that with this question. Or... Yeah. I think we have all the time in the world. Okay, so yeah, like, so, so basically I was saying like, you know, that John Candy told me all that stuff. And after that, you know, me and my mom were broke. We were basically sleeping in a, in a room in someone's house, renting a room. My aunt was like, uh, I want you to audition for this agent. So I auditioned for the agent. She said, I have a role for you in a Colgate toothpaste commercial. So the first thing I ever did, I, I auditioned for it. I got the part. I had to dance with a little girl in this Colgate commercial. And then they called me back and said, hey, you have the part in a Ragu Spaghetti Sauce commercial playing bocce ball. It's like an Italian game. So I did that. And then so my mom's like, wow, this is easy. And then I didn't get anything for like a year. Like we were really struggling and uh, Sandlot came along and I auditioned for originally for Bertram. I auditioned for Bertram twice and I got cast as Bertram. And then while we were on the field rehearsing and playing baseball, the producers came up and said, uh, hey, he doesn't really fit the role for Bertram. We have another character in mind that we want him to do. It's yeah, yeah. And they said he needs to have tons of energy. He needs to uh, really bring energy to this role. So my mom gave me a giant Hershey's bar before the audition. And I went in there and I just brought the energy and I got cast as yeah, yeah. 
Man, that's crazy. Your mom awesome. taking advantage of that sugar rush. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All natural. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. The rest is history after that. I think I auditioned for that part probably four times. And every time that we had to go back and audition, I don't know if you guys, you guys live in LA, right? Or do you guys, are you guys in, out of LA? Yeah, also Cal, yeah. Yeah, so basically there's a place in Sherman that was called the Sportsman's Lodge. That's where we auditioned for the film every time we had to go back and audition. So every time we went, there was all these kids that looked like us. Like I remember when they auditioned Ham, he was the last to be cast. And they had all these heavy set kids, probably like a hundred of them. And Pat was actually sitting next to me at the, I had already been cast in the film. And they wanted Pat to read with the rest of the guys that had already been cast. And Pat said, hey, man, you think I got this? I remember he tapped me on the shoulder. I said, he said, yeah, man, just be yourself. Because he was already a wisecracking kid to begin with. And the rest is history. Hey, Marty, uh, it's Andrew here. I can't go without saying thank you for being here tonight. appreciate you taking your time. I just wanted to say you were lucky enough to work with the great James Earl Jones. I was wondering if there was any memorable moments with Mr. Jones. And did any of the guys have any fanboy moments on set? Oh, wow. James Earl Jones. It's funny because a lot of the guys didn't meet him. I was one of the guys that did meet him. So my mom said, I'm going to take you to meet Darth Vader. And I said, yeah, right, mom. And so we had like a, a rec room where the sandlot was. There was a, a rec room in the back where basically we would go and eat and stuff like that. She said, um, he's in the back room. So she took me back there. He was eating a bowl of oatmeal. And I go, uh, are you Darth Vader? And he goes, Darth Vader, I am your father. And he says it in the real Darth Vader voice. I go, mom, it's him. <laughs> oh man i would have lost it yeah and that, that was like one of the coolest moments on set of that movie i did not get to meet dennis Lear or karen allen but uh james Earl jones was awesome i've had tickets myself to a local theater here in san diego so i was wondering what plays were you in when you were a kid oh man i did a play called rotten ruck and red rock i did the snow white and the seven dwarfs i did uh cheaper by the dozen uh, i did a lot of plays little shop of horrors it was like a local theater group in uh, Northern Sacramento. That's how I started my career was just doing plays from five to 10 years old. Yeah, I mean, it definitely will get you ready to get up in front of a camera if you're comfortable enough getting in front of people. Yeah, and plus plays, I mean, you get one, you get one shot and if you don't say the lines right, you got to improvise the lines. So Yeah, exactly. Uh, I can't imagine how stressful that is. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do plays, like you got to go in there and know that if you flub a line, you just got to keep, keep going and keep making it work. Marty Jesus here. Nice to meet you and uh, love the sound lot. Love your part in it. My kid's young and I'm going to show him when he's older. But my question is, uh, all you guys were obviously young teenagers during the movie. So I just want to know who was uh, the guy that was pranking or joking around the most? Uh, that'd definitely be Pat Ham. Yeah, he <laughs> definitely was the one always pulling pranks. And uh, I just remember all the stuff we did off camera. We snuck into Basic Instinct when it first came out. Tom's brother, Tom who plays Smalls, his brother snuck us into Basic Instinct because so, we all heard about the scene in the beginning. So we're like, uh, you know, we were, we were a bunch of horny teenage kids. We're like, we got to get in there and see this. And it was R-rated, so they wouldn't let us in. So Tom's <laughs> brother snuck us through the back door. He bought a ticket. He went in and then opened the back door. And we all walked in, watched the movie. But uh, yeah, we, we did a lot of, I mean, that was when Super Nintendo was huge. So we would play Street Fighter 2. That, like, that was like the game back then. But yeah, the prankster was definitely Pat Reno. It sounds like at that point in time, the roles you guys played fit you guys so well. Like when you yeah. say Pat is the prankster, I'm guessing that's what everyone would have guessed anyways. Yeah, yeah. that was my that's guess strange. right there too. <laughs> it it yeah. makes a hell of a lot of a sense. Uh, we were actually talking about this the other day. I was like browsing through HBO and I was, um, I watched The Big Green a couple times with Pat in it. I was telling my, my fiance here over here, Val, I was like, like that's, that's him from The Sandlot. And she hasn't seen it. 
she goes, no, I don't want to watch it. Like, she's like, I, I just can't imagine him playing anything but Ham. Just to show you, like, the legacy, like, the impact that it's left for, for generations. Uh, but I, I did have a question for you, um, and this is something that uh, one of our other guys, uh, his name is Koki, uh, he, he, he couldn't be on tonight, unfortunately, but um, I was just as curious. Uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes question regarding the filming of the movie. One of my personal favorite scenes, and I think a lot of other people can relate as well, the 4th of July scene, especially with you know America the Beautiful playing with uh, Ray Charles, brings me to tears almost every time I watch it. Like I could watch that scene. I'm curious, what was it like to film that scene? Just because it's so iconic and it's just a scene that people instantly remember when they think of the Sandlot. That scene was great to film. We started in, uh, I mean, everything that we kind of filmed, we filmed on location in Utah. So when we started filming the scene or Pat's running through the, all the tables and eating the food off the tables, so we basically, they had us running through, running through jumping, like they had fireworks going off. I mean, a lot of the stuff we did not move, they would not allow kids to do today. They actually had fireworks going off and we were jumping over lit fireworks. <laughs> like, so the beginning of filming that was funny. You know, when we actually did the scene on the reactions to the fireworks, basically it was like a gel. It was like, a, they're called gels. So they put them over the lights and they create different colors. So they had one on a wheel and they would spin it and it had like red and green. So us looking at the fireworks made it look like, you know, the fireworks were reflecting off of our faces. The, the scene, it was definitely fun. I mean, there obviously was no real fireworks in the sky. I hope I didn't ruin that for other people <laughs> thinking they were real. It was, it was definitely fun. And when we actually saw the finished product in the theater, it brought us to tears because we were like, wow. Like, I mean, when you add sound and you add the lighting and you add the special effects, you know, for what it was back then, it was amazing what they did and, and the music, I mean, we got to give it up to the guy that did the music in Sandlot. The music in that movie was just incredible, you know? Absolutely. And then there's another scene that I'm, um, I- I'm curious about was, was the dipping scene at the carnival. What yeah. was that like? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Problem Child 2 with John Ritter. Yeah. And yeah. when yeah. They, you know, the, kid, the kid isn't tall enough to ride the ride. So he, you know, he turns up the, the ride speed at maximum and every, all the kids just start vomiting. And then yeah. obviously there's this absolute yeah. shit show. I, w- I want to know like what that was like. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a, that wasn't, well, the chewing tobacco was beef jerky mixed with black licorice. So it was, you know, he wanted like a look, uh, first of all, I hate black licorice. I hate black licorice. So I love beef jerky though, but the mixture of the two was the most disgusting thing that there is. But you guys look so thrilled to be like on camera, to be like enjoying it. Like, how do you guys like not like, Oh my God, this sucks. It's acting. <laughs> um yeah i mean and then and then for the throw up they had like these machines that they were like tubes running into the machines running up the sides of our face and they were they like filled with like pea soup mixed with something else like barley or something when they would switch it on it was like by remote control it would shoot like throw up out of the the tube when we had it all over our clothes they would take buckets of the stuff and throw them on our clothes and they look like we puked all over ourselves but it was i mean it was disgusting we had to shoot with that puke on our shirt for like probably I would say five or six hours because they didn't want us taking the throw up off the shirt. So we were like literally walking around and then they would do the close-ups of each guy. They would mount the camera on the actual ride. Each guy would be like on there for like 30 or 40 minutes <laughs> filming as the thing was spinning around while we're covered in throw up, fake throw yeah. up. 
I don't know so, if I would need some fake throw up if I was packing a lip full of black licorice Slim Jims. So. Yeah, I mean, we felt sick after that. We shot that scene. I mean, we were like, all right, what's next? What's next scene? <laughs> How many times did you guys have to ride that? Oh, man, we rode that thing so many times. I rode that thing probably, I would say, 10 times in one night. Actually, more, probably like 15. Because they had to keep doing takes. They wanted like the perfect tape of us throwing up. So like Dave would say like, all right, you're puking everywhere and do something like you're just repulsed. So like, I don't know why the first thing came to my mind was grab all that black licorice and beef jerky out of my mouth and throw it because it was so nasty. I think you're the first, I think you're the first person in that scene who just realizes they're starting to get sick and there's that shot of you just taking that out. Yeah, it was, uh, it was gross. It's not a scene I'd want to do. I mean, if I got paid to do it, I'd do it again. (laughs) Thank you for telling that story. That's something that was been bugging me since the first time I've seen that movie. So I'm glad we we know the true story behind it now. Um, yeah. I mean, anybody else got anything else they yeah. want, they want to add on? I remember when I when I asked you about baseball. Now I kind of want to go full baseball at this point and just thank you so much about telling us all those really cool backstories about the Sandlot that I, I never knew. I'm pretty sure a lot of people never knew and. I don't know if you saw me on the video every time you said something that I didn't know, I'd kind of just lose it just because I think it's so cool to know little details of like what you guys went through and because you guys were kids doing this. So I just think that's super cool. Uh, But the one thing, and I'm going to go straight up here when you said, obviously I'm a Dodger fan, (laughs) right? Um, You weren't born in Los Angeles, correct? No, I was born in uh, Auburn, California, which is about eight hours away. It's kind of near Sacramento. Cool. So uh, that's really what I wanted to ask. I was born and raised in LA. I bleed blue. You know, I've been a Dodger fan since I was a kid. My mom, you know, went there pregnant with me. So I've literally been going there my entire life. When did that happen? When did you fall in love with the Dodgers? You know, is there a favorite section you you enjoy going to? I'm a left field pavilion guy. <laughs> you know, that's, that's yeah. where I always sit with all my buddies. You know, going straight into baseball. Yeah. When did you, you know, basically fall in love with the Dodgers? And uh, what do you like about Dodger Stadium? Stuff like that. Oh, man. Well, the first time I actually went to Dodger Stadium is when we filmed the last scene. For some reason, they brought some of the guys there, which was weird. So I was running around Dodger Stadium. It was completely empty. The funny thing about them filming at Dodger Stadium, it would have not have happened if it wasn't for Tommy Lasorda. He was the one that allowed us to film at Dodger Stadium. David McEvans basically said, like, we have to have the last scene at Dodger Stadium because that's Benny's joins the Dodgers. And he's like, we've got to find a way to do that. And our camera guy, Tony, was like, I know Tommy. And he was like, you know, Tommy, he's like, yeah, they went there. He calls up Tommy. Hey, Tommy, I'd like to bring the director. We want to film a baseball movie there. Tommy was walking around in his underwear in his office. Tony, our camera guy was like, Hey, we want to film a movie here. He's like, how long are you going to be? He's like, probably like a day. He's like, all right, go ahead. So one of the, one of the days Dodgers weren't playing, they filmed that last scene there. I mean, my first you know, time going to Dodger Stadium was filming the Sandlot because I got to run up and down. It was like completely empty. And I got to run in the field and stand in the middle of the field and like look at the bleachers and they were completely empty. And then the weird thing about it is 25 years later, I'm standing on that same field looking at a sold out crowd of the Dodgers playing the Giants. It was surreal. It was like completely like everything came back around. I think that's when I fell in love with the Dodgers. I got one more question for you here, Marty. I think it's funny that Tommy Lasorda is the reason Sandlot was at Dodger Stadium and Mike Piazza. So he had a few, uh, few random connections like that with Tommy Lasorda. We touched on a lot of the most important scenes I think we're missing the most important one, in my opinion, the pool scene with Wendy Peppercorn. Can you walk me through that one as a kid filming that? Well, that was to this day the coldest pool any of us were ever in. I mean, that pool was freezing. 
you know, obviously Chauncey wanted to keep shooting that scene. He actually kept flubbing the scene so he could keep kissing her. And Dave was like, okay, I, I see what you're doing here. You got to stop. We got to get this scene. But yeah, that's funny. The first time we met Marley, she was like, she was sitting in a uh, lifeguard chair. We were all gathered around the lifeguard chair asking her questions like, hey, which one of us do you want? <laughs> and she was like, she was like probably like 17 or 18 at the time that we were like 13. And she was like, oh, you guys are cute. You're just a little too young. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when, when Chauncey's like going like, uh, his mouth, teeth are chattering, it was because the pool was so cold. They ended up keeping it in the movie because it looked like he was nervous about what he was about to do. So a lot of the stuff we did was like flukes. Just it worked, you know. It just seemed like you were your character. I think someone said that earlier, but that's how it came through the whole movie. It seems like everyone acted as they really were. So that's really cool. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, back then we were really, you know, we were almost very close to those characters. And uh, I remember it was back then they had your mama jokes. So like I had a big book, your mama jokes. The whole thing before we went to the pool of me going like, oh, oh, that whole thing was because David saw us going back and forth with your mama jokes. And then every time someone would have a good one, I would go, oh, and then Dave would be like, okay, we got to put that in the film. That was uh, the scam pool honey scene. Anybody who wants to be a can't hack it, pat, panty waist and wear your mama's bra. Thing I do after that, that was like, because of your mama jokes. Speaking of your mom, was she still packing you full of Hershey's bars every day? No. <laughs> that was uh, that was like just for the audition. Okay. Okay. I didn't know if you were. Sick. I didn't know if that was the secret elixir for you during the entire filming process. Maybe <laughs> a lot of Hershey's. Yeah, that's like crack every day. Marty, uh, I read online that the film was filmed in a total of forty-two days, and sometimes it'll get so hot it'll be one hundred ten degrees. Uh, I just want to know what was most challenging part of filming for you. And second question, so I could just get out of the way. Who is your favorite Dodger player? The most difficult part of filming, I'll go into that first, was uh, probably, I mean, probably that pool scene just because it was so cold. And we had to be in that pool for hours on end. Like we had to be in that pool for probably five, six hours. So we were like, by the end of it, just like, uh, we actually had to keep getting out when they would yell cut and drying off and we would be shaking. And back then I weighed like 110 pounds. So I'd be like, uh, like really shaking violently because it was so cold. Then you have the opposite where when we were filming getting the ball back scene, it was like 110 degrees. And so they would um, get big bottles of this stuff called sea breeze and put um, a rag in there and then put it on our face and put it on our neck and it would have cool you down. But we would like sit in the treehouse just to like cool down because it was so freaking hot. And then, oh, my favorite Dodger player is Puig. I call that week actually Dodger Stadium when we did the 25th anniversary. He didn't come out. That's awesome. Uh-huh. That's okay. <laughs> I wish I could find the footage. I, somebody has that. But uh, yeah, it was like uh, they had us on a jumbotron at the end of the giant Dodger game. And I said, where's Puig didn't come out because we met all the other players with Turner and all the other guys. But Puig was like hiding somewhere. So I go, where's Puig at? And I flexed on him. And the funny thing is about eight months ago, Puig, he had a charity fundraiser at Houdini's Mansion here in Los Angeles. And uh, I got an invite to it. So I went there and I was talking about talking to him about it. He put me in a headlock. And he goes, I remember when you did that. <laughs> I have one more question, Marty. Question is, everyone with, you know, with MLB Trash Talkers, all baseball fans. And I think I can say this for everyone. We probably want to visit all 30 stadiums because we're just all fans, whether it's to follow our team uh, me, as a Rangers fan, I would love to see my Texas Rangers play at all 30 stadiums, but to me, honestly, it just doesn't really matter. 
what are like the top three stadiums that you have not been to yet that you would like to cross off personally? Uh, some of the guys got to go to, uh, what's it called? The, the stadium in Boston, which is the oldest baseball stadium in the United States. The Green Monster. That's the stadium I didn't get to see. I wanted to see that just because it's so old. My favorite stadium that I actually went to was the Miami Marlins Stadium, believe it or not. Although they, they suck, but their stadium was freaking amazing. It was immaculate. Yeah, with those windows that open in center field and the fish tanks. Yeah, that park has some character to it for sure. Yeah, the, the fish tank runs the entire course of the field. It's, it's, it's crazy. We, did, we stayed in like the suites when we were filming it. We were actually doing an interview and Jeter calls us over. And so we went over to his suite. He had two armed guards standing in front of his suite. And he's like this. He's like, come in. We walk in and he has the biggest like layout of sushi I've ever seen. And he's like, go ahead and have, and I love sushi. He's like, have whatever you want. And he's like, hey, I want to thank you guys for raising the attendance level in my stadium. <laughs> so we were like, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, sure thing, Mr. Jeter. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure uh, any Marlins fan would appreciate that, Marty, for sure. You know, they don't yeah. really get a lot of people over there. So yeah, that's really cool how impactful even that was. And, you know, the, just the fact that Derek Jeter said that to you. I mean, that's a great joke, but I think he really meant it. <laughs> yeah, who, who was more nervous of me who – Jeter meeting the Sandlot crew or the Sandlot crew meeting Jeter? Probably us meeting Jeter. Uh, I mean, Jeter was very calm and collected compared to some of the other players we met. Trout was just like amazed. Like he was like, when he met Pat, he was just like, no way, dude, can I give you a hug? Like to Pat. And uh, that was cool. You know, I think that's one of the most interesting things that I've heard from this whole chat. And once again, thank you so much, Marty. You inspired guys, man. You, you, you guys, that movie inspired kids to play baseball, to love baseball. And, I think that's cool when you said you went full circle and then you actually felt that you actually had major leaguers. I treat baseball players like rock stars. You know what I mean? I, I just think they're just, you know, I, I get starstruck every time I see one or I meet one or I'm close to one. And uh, just everything you've said to us, I think that's probably the coolest part that the guys we look as heroes, that's how they see you guys. That's how they see the cast. That's how, you know, they, they felt it, man. And it's so cool when you said, like, he asked uh, Ham if he can hug him, you know, just like, may I? When a lot of other people be like, whoa, you know. So once again, man, just thank you, you know, for being a part of it. And uh, I just think it's so cool how you've gotten to have all these baseball experiences after the fact. And uh, once again, how you touched on, like, in the 25th anniversary, that's when you really felt it. That movie was so impactful in a lot of people's lives that baseball is a little antiquated. So I think they embraced you guys a little bit more, like maybe on the 25th, made it more because there was more, probably more social media because how else would you know unless you'd see it like on an IG post, a Facebook post. And I think, you know, everything you've done leading up to this point has been great. And uh, I just wanted to say thanks a lot, man. Much appreciated. Thank you. Once again, Marty, um, it's been a huge pleasure having you on. It's been nothing short of a privilege. So once again, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's been fun. Thank you for being on the cast, man. I appreciate you. For sure. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. so much, Marty. So that was Marty York, everybody. How awesome. Oh, my goodness. Some of those stories, dude. Yeah, it was great. We heard stories about a crash that changed his life, Derek Jeter, Mike Trout. He mentioned Kobe Bryant. I mean, how cool was that in like an hour? Getting drunk with Wade Boggs. Getting drunk with Wade Boggs. Dude, I can't wait to go back and listen to it again. It's amazing. Dreams field, you know, that like that's his favorite movie. Come on, man. Yeah. Who would have thought his favorite player would have been Puig, right? (laughs) Dude, I knew I was like, 
I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh, Ralphie hyped right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was thinking like a Dodger, like a legend, like Current, right, Sandy yeah. Colfax or whatever. But Dude, that's why I lost yeah, it. That's, funny. that's why I lost it because, hey, it's yeah. funny. My favorite Dodger still play, god damn it. <laughs> Me too. My favorite Dodger. So I have a very special announcement for those listening right now. We have another special guest coming up next week. We are going to be joined by Ozzy Guillen Jr., from La Vida Baseball, and obviously uh, you hear Junior, so he is the son of Ozzy Guillen Sr., obviously the World Series winning manager for the Chicago White Sox, known for his short tenure with the Miami Marlins. It's going to be a blast to have Ozzy Jr. on next week. We're going to go ahead and uh, shift gears. Some big news this week out of the baseball universe. Sources say that owners have approved the MLB season proposal planned for July as the projected start date with uh, spring training as early as June. So what do you guys think of this proposal that's been put out? It's given us a little bit more of a clearer uh, picture of as to when we might see baseball again in 2020. The kind of simplified breakdown is that the proposal is for an 82-game season that will begin in July. There will be a universal DH, 14 playoff teams overall, and they are going to use the team's home stadiums, but it's going to be regionally divided. So I believe the AOS will play the NOS teams, and those teams will only play those teams exclusively. Same thing for the Central, same thing for the East. You know, we did talk about this possibly being an option several podcasts ago. I like the option personally, but I understand it might not be mitigating the risk, but this is kind of what I was hoping for. I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say, though. I think as long as there's something like momentum, it's a good thing. And at least there's a plan now. So there is some sort of light at the end of the tunnel as far as there being a season. I think the the biggest thing for me is like, you know, obviously the owners can say what they want to say and do what they want to do. They have complete control of it. But I think the player aspect is kind of interesting. Like, would those guys necessarily listen and be like, okay, you know, back to work? That, that's kind of where I'm at when I saw the proposal, more the player reaction more than like the actual plan. They're one of the biggest things that's been controversial about this is the revenue sharing issue and the player's salary issue. And that's what I think that it's going to be a big hurdle with. From what I heard initial reactions early on in this week, it seems like even though this proposal has been put forth, there's going to be a little bit of back and forth between now and when they actually go to spring training. Because earlier this year, they agreed to doing prorated salaries for these players. And now I guess the conversation shifting to where the owners actually want to cut their salaries even further than the prorated level because they're not going to be getting the revenues, you know, when you would have a stadium packed full of people. And, oh man, it's really hard to feel bad for billionaires. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone on here is going to really advocate for the owners. I just, I don't know. I don't know how you come to an agreement at one point, things continue to progress and we get closer to season and now you're trying to change it up. And that's where the players are really taking issue with it. You know, a lot of guys are uh, coming out of the woodworks a little bit and kind of speaking their mind. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but at the same time, their position is we agreed to something and now you're pushing this proposal forward and it's not what we initially talked about. And I can understand where they're, they're basically trying to pull a fast one just to get the season going and make it look like, Hey, like, yeah, let's do this. But in reality, there's the fine print that's involved, of course. 
And we're all ready for baseball. <laughs> we're all like, give me some MLB action as soon as possible. But at the same time, you want to make sure that these guys are taken care of. Like they're not frontline, you know, workers working in the healthcare industry. But at the same time, they're still putting themselves at risk going out there and being, you know, amongst large groups of people faculty at the stadiums their teammates there's gonna be expanded rosters if they do this thing too so that's just even more people to be exposed to so i don't know it'll be interesting like i said i don't think the story's quite done yet i think that there's still a little bit more to talk about and i think that in the coming weeks is when they're gonna go back and forth with this thing a little bit yeah because there's no way that the mlb owners can think anything other than a 50 50 split would be fair but the mlb owners obviously they're billionaires they're they're hustlers They're going to try to go out there and get as much money out of their business as they can, which I guess we can all understand to some extent. But you're right. That doesn't justify the fact that you're going to go and try to screw the players out of more money than they should just because you can. And you can essentially make that narrative that the players are being selfish and not going out and playing a child's game and getting paid for it, regardless of how much money they're making. But the fact is, this isn't about people that have made big comments this week, like Blake Snell and Bryce Harper. This is about the players on the roster that's going to be players 24 through 26 who are going to be making hardly any money because those salaries that are going down from the big players are obviously cut a significant amount, but they're still making a significant amount. The players that are fringe players are going to be making hardly anything. They're going to be making minor league comparable money or less in some cases. So obviously understand those guys when they say that the risk just might not be worth it for them and their family to go be away from their family for however many months in this shortened season just to get paid, in their opinion, a unacceptable amount. My take on that is like, look, clearly there's something going on. Clearly there's not going to be a full season a lot of revenue is going to be taken out of this, right? In my, my opinion, you know, I love the players, but at the same time, I mean, I think they kind of be, they got to be a little bit realistic in the, in the sense that, you know, this is not normal. This is new. They're trying to work it out. They're trying to make it so it's normal as it can be. And, and I, I think that's kind of difficult. But, you know, I think Blake Snell's comment was the one that resonated throughout baseball just because I just don't know if everybody shares his opinion. I mean, he, he was quoted saying, Y'all got to understand, man, for me to go, for me to take a pay cut is not happening because the risk is through the roof. It's a shorter season, less pay. No, I got to get my money. I'm not playing unless I get mine, okay? And that's just the way it is for me. Like, I'm sorry if you guys think differently, but the risk is way the hell higher and the amount of money I'm making is way lower. Why would I think about doing that? And I think Bryce Harper came out and kind of backed him up saying he's just saying what everybody else is thinking. Once again, when I said, like, when the proposal's out there, this sounds to me like it didn't really resonate well with the players if they do share his opinion. I think they're pissed off because they agreed to the prorated salary thing. It's like, we're going to play 82 games. That means we get half of our salary. And now they're trying to, like, step that back and reduce that even more. And that's where the MLBPA, you know, that's why those guys make money. And I think the end result is going to be these guys are going to get the prorated salary. I don't think they're getting extra hazard. I don't think they're getting hazard pay to play baseball. Do you think it's okay for the players to be that vocal or should they, you know, kind of stay quiet and say all these concerns that they have to the Players Association? Because that's what it's for, right? I mean, that's what the MLBPA is for, for you to go there, let them know how you feel, and then they take all the opinions of everybody because they're literally there for the players, right? We got to remember, these guys are humans too. These guys, they are trying to be safe and, you know, of course, put bread on their table for their families. At the end of the day, yeah, they are still entitled to their voice. It's not just, all right, to stick to sports, stick to hitting baseballs. They're entitled to the same voice. 
it, it's still a job though. And you know, a lot of Americans yeah. got told they can't go to work and I know they're not happy about it, but my point is it, it's still a job. And once you get to the, you sign a contract, you work for an organization now. I think it resonated bad for me is because I know a lot of people are losing their jobs. A lot of people can't go to work. And here's the guy getting told, well, we're, you still have a job. We're still going to pay you. Clearly look at the situation and he's not happy with it. I don't know how to feel about that. I, I really don't. To me also, I felt it was kind of weird that he brought up money and the health thing because I think it's one or the other. Let's just say the, the announcement was, okay, yeah, we're going to do 82 games and we're going to pay you everything. You're not going to lose a dime. So what, Blake Snell wouldn't have said anything? He wouldn't have brought up health issues? He, so, so then if you are getting paid millions of dollars, you can risk yourself and your family? That sounds kind of weird to me. When you're talking about whether players should have a voice during this, I always think that a human being should have their own voice. If they want to have it, they should be able to speak their mind. What we have in the United States, obviously, it's built on that. But when it comes to situations like this, you wonder if players should hold their tongue a little bit more because you don't want to have a situation where something slips out on Twitch or on, you know, whatever. It makes all the other players look bad. You know, you got to go ahead and, like you said, are you going to let the MLBPA do it? I think we've talked about this in prior podcasts that Tony Clark has never been afraid to go to bat for the players. So this is a situation where the players might be better off just letting Tony Clark handle it and all of the rest of the MLBPA because obviously they're the ones in the meetings. Obviously they want baseball to continue just as well as everyone else. And obviously they have the player's best interest in mind and they're using their voice as the voice of the players. So I feel like you kind of just got to let the people whose jobs it is iron these out. Yeah, I thought the platform he chose to do it. He was playing a video game on Twitch. I'm not knocking him for that, but it just kind of feels more like, you know, on Twitch you feel a little bit more like, you know, kind of shooting the shit kind of mentality. You're not... For me, it was just weird, like how he said it, where he said it. And um, I just don't know how many of the players feel the same way he does. Maybe that's why I think maybe these guys, and look, by no means I'm saying they should keep their mouth shut. Obviously, that's terrible, and I don't really want to come off that way. I think the MLBPA is there for a reason. And if you have any of those concerns, uh, you should be able to just say it to them. And to Andrew's point, Tony Clark does an amazing job. So maybe they should maybe just hold back, not their opinions. I don't know. Maybe they should phrase it better. I don't think I don't, Blake don't. Snell's comments is a good representation of like the group as a whole. I think the MLB as a whole is probably like 75 to 80% of the guys are like, hey man, I'd rather play baseball than not. Right. And guess what? Every team's going to have that 26th guy who would love to be making the prorated salary for a major leaguer because in the minors, they're not making anything close to that. They're not even making a livable wage most of the time. If they're in the lower divisions of the minors, they're making a couple grand a month. Yeah, working in lows in the offseason. Yeah, it's just, you know, for those guys, like even the prorated salary, being in the bigs for 82 games, it could be a career-changing thing. So I think you take that into account too, you know. For Nolan Arenado, for Blake Snell, for Bryce Harper, those guys are going to make their money. Where I think it's like scary, I guess you could say as a fan, like all the players feel this way. And what if the decision is you don't have to play if you don't want to? And then that's fine. But Snell is like a big star, so we're, we're still bringing him up. So then you're a race fan, and you're not going to see one of your best pitchers out there. You're going to go with the season. And then how many guys will do that? What if Bryce Harper says, I don't want to play? What if, you know, Cody Bellinger says, yeah, I'm not doing it either. And Kershaw, I think Kershaw's been kind of vocal about this as well. So as baseball fans, does this feel forced at this point? Like, are you guys okay with, okay, half the team isn't playing, but the guys that are going to play are going to play. 
but they're not even some of your favorite players. How would you guys feel about that? Well, you know, this brings me back to a conversation a while back where we talked about how the summer Olympics are going to be played. And if the Dodgers were to allow their players to leave in the middle of the season to go play in the Olympics and they got hurt and the Dodgers ended up suffering because, let's say, Cody Bellinger got hurt in the Olympics, would you hold that against Cody Bellinger as a Dodger fan? Would the Dodgers organization hold that against him, you know, just in the back of their minds? So in this situation, if you were a race fan and Blake Snell sat out of the season, would you hold that against him from here on out? Would you as an organization hold that against him? Because you look at what Blake Snell's making. Blake Snell's making $7 million this year, 10 and a half next year, 12 and a half the next year, and 16 the next year. His contract is backloaded. Mm-hmm. Like I understand his argument a little bit more from players like Trevor Bauer, who are going to go the LeBron approach, as he said, and go year by year with his contract. But Blake Snell already has his money backloaded on his contract. He's going to be making more money next year than he had the year before, more money in 2022, more money in 2023. I'm not saying that $7 million is anything to scoff at, like it's no big deal that he's losing a fraction of that money. But it's not like he's missing out on his 2023 salary when he's been working for it for four or five years already. I don't think as fans, we'd hold any players accountable for or against it to them. Good point, though, with a franchise. You know, would a franchise go like, oh, we're just going to trade this guy. He's not dedicated. You know, he's kind of talking smack about us trying to make him go out there and not paying him all his money. I think more of an organization, yeah, an organization would take that and kind of not like a slap in the face, but, you know, just be like, well, you know, we're doing the best of what we got. And, you know, and if it doesn't make you happy, well, then maybe you can go somewhere else. I, I think yeah, it would kind of be more- like that quote in Friday. I'm a member of that. <laughs> exactly. You know, so I think it would affect more of the organization as far as like resentment. Right. I think as, as, as fans, we don't. Right. I mean, we want the guys to be healthy. We want the guys to have their opinions and do what they think is best for them. But I really do think, yeah, the organization might hold it against them in the future. I think it depends on what kind of injury you sustain, because I assume if players go do stuff like that. I mean, if you have a chance, especially with the Olympics, a lot of guys, it's a national pride thing. Like they want to represent their country. So I don't want to deter people from doing that. And I think you just, as an organization, you tell them like, hey, we don't want you to go crashing in the wall. Granted, as an athlete, it's really hard to tell someone to hold up. It's really hard to like try to pull in the reins and try to contain a player. Like Bryce Harper, Yasiel Puig, like you can't really tell those guys like how to play. You just got to let them do their thing. Same thing with Tatis, you know, with the Padres. That's one of the biggest concerns with him. He had a couple injuries last season. And the debate was, should they kind of tell him to, hey, you know, pull it back a little bit. But then you, like, limit his potential. You limit who he is as a player. And so, I don't know. There's, I'm sure, stipulations for that stuff in their contracts, too. If they go participate in the Olympics, if they go to the WBC and they get hurt, they're probably not getting paid for that season. If they lose out and they're not participating in games – I don't know if they're getting their full salary or anything like that. There's stipulations in their contracts, I'm sure. And we're talking about the players, you know, I just wanted to go into this document that came out, a 12-page document that was entitled The Economics of Playing Without Fans in Attendance. It detailed the losses that the league was facing under the current arrangement that they have proposed. And so every game would lead to a rough loss of $640,000 and all 30 teams would face losses of at least $84 million over the course of the season. The bottom team being the Tigers at that $84 million mark. 
Number one, of course, would be the Yankees. They are projected to lose $312 million, which is a lot higher than second place, which is the Dodgers at $232 million. So that's a $80 million swing from first to second between the Yankees and the Dodgers. Obviously, everyone would think the Yankees can survive something like that. The Yankees are built to deal with something like this. The Dodgers are built to survive something like this. But if you look at it, the Yankees losing $312 million this season, their net worth as a company is $4.6 billion, I believe. So, you know, that's a lot of money, regardless of how much money you have. You know, the Yankees, obviously no one's going to feel bad for the Yankees, like I said. But teams like the Tigers or teams like the Royals, teams like the Pirates that don't have a lot of money in their rosters as it is, not having fans in attendance during a down year can be crushing for those kind of teams that are counting on beer sales and counting on ticket sales and everything of the sort. Even before the pandemic and everything, sometimes I wonder how teams can dish out contracts like that. Like, I don't know how the White Sox can pay Jose Abreu what they pay him. And then I look at a day game and there's no one there. You know, the Marlins, there's nobody there. I don't even know how these guys survive normally pre this you know what I mean and I'm not saying like I think we made jokes on trash talkers like oh the Marlins and the D-backs and the White Sox have done this for years you know like play with no fans in attendance interesting what Andrew said you know teams like the Yankees are built to survive through this because they have the yes network I mean they have multiple you know their money isn't really coming in from the fans do do they get a lot of it absolutely of course they do but even then that's my point sometimes I don't even know how the you guys seen Reds games during the day at Great American Ballpark? There's absolutely nobody there, and Joey Votto's getting paid what? <laughs> you know, sometimes I wonder how, how they even did it with that little of a fan base attending games. So when they say, we're going to cut this much from you just because there aren't any fans, I- I'm always left wondering teams that barely draw any fans and how they're even able to dish out those contracts. Their primary source of revenue is going to be from the broadcasting deals that they get from whatever local station they're with, or like the naming rights of the stadium. There's different forms of revenue for them. It kind of makes sense when you start to look at it. I just I just pulled it up. I'm on Statista.com. In 2019, the Yankees' revenue for that season was $683 million. It's a lot of money. But even the poorest team, the Marlins, who were like, oh my gosh, how do they even afford to pay rent? They still had revenues of $222 million. They're still making money. <laughs> you know, That's surprising. I, that's very but surprising. That's also why they cut their payroll. Because if your payroll is only a quarter of what your revenues are, that's probably a good formula to continue to build on your business. The Yankees, that's why they almost have limitless money. It's like they're never going to they're never going to run out of money in an average year. They do 700 million nowadays. It's crazy. Yeah, we know the Marlins can afford rent because apparently they can afford a smorgasbord of sushi for Jeter and Marty, huh? <laughs> right? Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, man, they signed Jesus Aguilar. They brought in Corey Dickerson and, yeah. oh, Matt Kemp, you know? No, that's a minor league. Oh, league. man, that defense They traded for Johnson Villar, so that's like, that's an eight <laughs> mil right there. You know, now, now, like going into like the fan side of it with the whole proposal, I know you guys are purists as, hell, as far as like the DH goes. You guys don't want it in the National League. and Uh, So here's my point. I mean, what are we going to get back? I mean, if this does start, and I know you guys are vocal about hating the DH. I don't mind the DH. But so now you're getting an 82-game series. You have to have a DH. So you as fans, I mean, like, what, what are we getting if the season does start? I mean, this is nothing close to what we're used to. Nothing close to what we're used to. I mean, are you okay with like, okay, screw it. I hate the DH. But if it means me getting a season this year, you guys are okay with the DH? 
hundred percent. You can't you can't afford to lose like six or seven in a row. Like it'll really set you back. You're not going to be able yeah, to come back from that. It. Everything's so much more crucial. Like you know? getting swept in this kind of a season would be catastrophic for a baseball team, especially like, cause you know, this would even more accentuate one of the most said lines in baseball. Game one is just as important as game 162. You could lose three games in a row in April and that can end you in September. So something like this, you come out of the gate cold and you're playing against teams that you're not used to playing against. Like let's say, contender in this proposed western division let's say the angels get off to a slow start the angels would have to be in panic mode right from the get-go and that is the last thing you want as an angels fan in a season like this because this is one of those seasons where you could actually put it together and you can make a run in a situation like this where you don't you know you don't have to put up with the astros in the same capacity that you would have before because you're playing the nls now and you got to play those games along with only an 82 game season so you're going to be playing the the giants more you're going to be playing the rockies can you imagine the angels playing more games in Coors field that team can do well there Good point because uh you know every time the Dodgers play the Angels the day, the Angels cream them in the regular season always that's what I've noticed so but you know we always write it off as like oh they're in the AL we're in the NL who cares now that takes that dynamic to a whole new level because now every time the Angels spank the Dodgers that's it gonna really just, matters yeah it's really gonna cut into you you know. And to your point, you can't drop any games to the teams. Like, you can't drop games to the Marlins. So my point is this. As a fan, I'm okay with this happening because, to be honest, I think that might be some of the most exciting baseball we've ever seen, especially adding the DH to this where you don't get a pitcher out there like every you know ninth at bat just kind of throwing it away or bunting or grounding out or popping out. You're going to have a bat in the lineup now. And, you know, I've always said this kind of extends guys' career. It gives like sluggers and maybe your minor league system a really good place to shine or uh, maybe guys with older contracts that you don't necessarily want on the field anymore. They straight up slide into your DH. My point is, you know, you get a shortened season where everything's more important. You get more offense. Andrew said, too, you're going to see the Angels probably play in Coors Field. So, I mean, that might be exciting to watch. Ultimately, I think if this does happen, this could very well be some of the most exciting baseball we've ever seen. Like you said, not every player probably has the same mindset as Blake Snell does about this. Jordan Hicks had a quote recently where, you know, Jordan Hicks is coming back off Tommy John, a total flamethrower, a huge part of the bullpen for the St. Louis Cardinals. He expressed optimism that if they do have a season that he'll have some way of being a key member, a key part for the Cardinals. And I don't know if you guys know this, he's a type 1 diabetic, but he expressed to Ken Rosenthal that his condition isn't going to impact his willingness to play this season. I don't know if you guys heard that, but uh, do you guys have any reaction? I mean, I respect the hell out of it. I mean, he's got a pre-existing condition, and he's still willing to go out there and play. That's totally the opposite of what Snell said, right? I mean, it's completely the opposite of what Snell said. I would love to hear more of the players' like opinions on this because they say yes and they agree. I don't think you can force a guy to play. And if you can't force a guy to play, and let's just say half the team says no, right? What do you do? You're bringing your entire AAA roster to be the Dodgers, to be the Yankees? Like, I think let's just bring up the Yankees. What if Giancarlo says, I'm not playing. Judge says, I'm not playing. Gleyber Torres says, I'm not playing. Garrett Cole says, I'm not playing. And, you know, the rest of the guys say, oh, yeah, we are playing. And then say, okay, well, that's not the Yankees now, is it? You know I don't I mean? know, man. That sounds a lot like the 2019 Yankees to me. <laughs> 
<laughs> very good point. Very, very good point. You're right. Another yeah. another year of Gio Urshela tearing the cover off the ball. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, if anything, you might respect the guys, some guys a little bit more that say yes, right? And and how is that going to make the guys that say no look? I mean, that that's an interesting dynamic there. I don't know if you guys saw another little note that came out from the MLB this week. The MLB decided upon a five-round draft this summer. I know we were talking about that previously. We were wondering what was going to happen with the draft. Uh, Rob Manfred laid down the decision when the MLB and the MLBPA couldn't come to agreement on the particulars. Jeff Passan noted that a 10-round draft was preferred by baseball operations departments, but the version of the offer that came from the league effectively would have separated the draft into two five-round sections with greater spending limitations on the latter half and a cap on undrafted signings. Ultimately, the owners were more concerned with avoiding the cost of additional bonuses than they were by the potential to acquire more high-end talent in the later stages of the draft. Draft-eligible players that are not selected in the five rounds will be eligible to sign for a maximum bonus of $20,000. The draft will be held remotely, which is, of course, not very surprising given what we saw from the NFL a month ago. Uh, It will be held June 10th and June 11th with day one, including just the first round and day two being the rest of the rounds. Undrafted amateurs will be eligible to sign beginning on June 14th, three days after the draft is over, and there will be a dead period for contacts between teams and those players in the days in between. And teams are not permitted to offer undrafted free agents anything other than what they could have offered draftees, for example, scholarship money for high school players. Obviously, this is going to be a bit of a different draft situation. A lot, a lot lot, lot smaller. That's yeah, a lot, a lot of, of hoops, hoops to jump through. <laughs> and they're going down from 40 rounds to five. So what are you guys' thoughts on this, Slam? I mean, I think a lot of college guys are going to choose to go back to school anyways because the NCAA approved players returning as fifth-year seniors, I guess. Um, so I think a lot of guys are going to opt to do that. This puts the guys that just graduated high school in an interesting spot because I don't think there's any going back to high school. <laughs> so hopefully they figured out their plans for college. And I don't know. It's really, it's really interesting. You know, these kids, it's a tough decision either way. When you get drafted, you have a decision. A lot of times players that are draft eligible, they mostly likely have a scholarship to go play somewhere. And there's always a decision of that cost benefit analysis. Like, should I go pro now or should I wait and maybe improve my draft stock? I think a lot of guys are going to opt to do that because there's just so many less chances of you being drafted And I have no idea if they're going to get drafted and paid the same type of bonuses and stuff like that, that they would have normally. And um, I think it's an interesting proposition. Like I said, I think, I think you'll see a lot of guys return to college um, and play another season in the NCAA. It just makes a lot of sense. Although there's a lot of people not even sure if they want to go back to school in the fall because uh, it's uh, online only for most campuses in California. I think the UC system and the CSU system are going to be all online in the fall, guaranteed. So who knows what the spring will even bring. You know, we had Ryan Cohen on, and he was telling us, like, he doesn't know if he will go back to school if it's online only. So I'm sure a lot of kids are grappling with that, too. You know, maybe you guys can educate me a little bit more, and, and if anybody's listening who is like me, just to get more information. Because to me, I'm going to use the NFL draft as a comparison, even though I know they're two different, completely different things. The NFL draft went pretty well, right? Like kind of without a hitch, I guess you could say, minus the whole glitz and glam of what they usually do. But for the MLB, is the major difference here that these guys won't get like as much money? Or what's the biggest like difference between that and this? 30 less players drafted per team. 
That, yeah, um, and you know, like, okay. there's always, there's these brackets that you get selected in this certain round bracket, and then you can be eligible to make this amount of money. And so, like I said, in this situation, players that aren't drafted can only make a total of $20,000 as a bonus, as opposed to teams being able to just figure that out on their own. Normally, 11th round picks probably still getting a six-figure signing bonus. So that's a huge decrease, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so even for a guy that was going to be like the last pick for a team, it's probably pretty close or, you know, it's around maybe what they would have earned for a bonus either way. I don't know. There's a lot of factors, man. Being a part of the major leagues, you know, I don't know firsthand again, but I played alongside a guy in high school who had a full-ride scholarship to go to University of Oregon. And he was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles. Shout out Tim Barry, San Marcos High School, 2009. He had to have Tommy John surgery in high school. And he was forced with a choice. He could go pro and get major league treatment and major league rehab. Or he could go to college. And he's still he's gambling on himself either way. But you're locking in that signing bonus. And he received like an above slot bonus, I think, for the round he was drafted in. He went pro. That was the decision that he made. And a lot of guys have to make that decision. Should I go back to college? Should I go pro? Should I go to college at all? It's a big decision. Thank you for clarifying that because that just, wow, that blew my head up. I I really didn't get it. I mean, so a lot of players that were going to get drafted this year aren't going to get drafted. We all know those lightning in a bottle stories where a guy gets drafted in a, you know, way, way, and then he becomes a player like Mike Trout. Or I've seen stories where, like, guys got drafted before Trout or before, like, this really big superstar that is now. So, I mean, that, that's going to be taken away, the guys that get drafted at the, at the back of the draft. So you're saying a lot of guys aren't going to get an opportunity this year. And who knows? I mean, what, what's that going to look like in the future? Yeah, I'm thinking about the future as well, because only five rounds this year, that's going to saturate the draft pool a lot from here on out. Because honestly, who knows how long a draft being this short is going to affect the draft and the players that are coming into the draft for years to come. Because like we said, those players that were going to get drafted rounds 30 through 40, and you know that you're not a top prospect, but you know you're damn well good enough to get drafted. Now you're not. And you were banking on that for years. Because you know if you're coming up in college, like you know if you're good enough to at least get drafted and play in the minor leagues most of the time. And those guys that were counting on however much money they were going to get, Like you said, most of those guys are going to be making like six figures. So that is a life-changing amount of money, especially at the age that they're going to be getting it. And so those guys not getting the money along with not getting drafted at all, not being able to enter an organization and enter the game of Major League Baseball, you don't know if they're going to be able to come back next year with all these other players, 35 rounds worth of players, along with the players that are now eligible to enter the draft next season. There's going to be a lot of guys that end up just not getting their chance at all and not even being able to make their way into the minor leagues because of this. There's other things to consider, too. There's more There's more than just the 30 teams, 35 players per team, which comes to 1,050 guys that don't get drafted. My guess is, I mean, they're going to do several things here. I think that to combat this in the future, maybe you see expanded drafts for the following years. So maybe they add extra rounds from what they would normally do, but they're already, I don't know. They, they already made moves to get rid of a lot of minor league affiliates. Like there was a big cutoff and like there was 40 minor league teams affiliates for various organizations that were just nixed all together. 
And that's part of, you know, the aftershocks of this pandemic and part of what's the bigger issue here. There's a lot of guys that are going to be looking for jobs next summer in Major League Baseball, trying to just get on with a team. And there's plenty of guys that are extremely talented. This, it, there's so many ripples here. Does this affect the international market? Like, does this make teams less willing to go sign players that are in the international market? Or does it make them more willing to sign players? And then that just extrapolates the problem. Like, it just exponentially makes the problem grow because then there's that many more players that aren't getting jobs in the state. That, that just opened my brain up on a, on a certain thing. Were, were all those teams cut because of the pandemic or that was going to no. happen anyway? Yeah, that was, already, that was already, like, okay. that was already so, uh, written about and, like, in motion before that right. before this my all bad. started so. my bad <laughs> yeah. uh, so, well i mean good timing or not good timing it's totally yeah it's i yeah. mean it it works out because that's if there's 30 guys on each team that's 1200 players that they don't need anymore for those 40 affiliates kind of makes up the difference of the players that they're not drafting but again it's just so many guys looking for jobs so many guys that are trying to catch on with the team somewhere so. well you know through this whole mlb talk i i guess it just kind of slipped my mind there's gonna be no minor league baseball this year right i asked that i don't because, believe like, there's any minor league baseball this season so, so the guys you draft this year either way where are you gonna put them i mean so you, they just kick it for a year even though you draft them i guess i assume they're playing baseball somewhere Arizona Fall League or something like that when it starts up. I'm sure there's something they're going to be doing. They're not going to just sit on their hands for a year, but. Right, right. But, you know, as an organization, usually, you know, you get, you know, obviously you draft your guys and then you throw them in your double A, triple A, right? The, the minor league affiliates. So I didn't, I actually never thought of that. So, I mean, if there is no minor league system, even let's just say you did, like you get drafted number one this year, that num that one guy, I mean, he's yours now. And if there is no minor league baseball, I mean, how do you keep them in baseball shape? How are you going to capitalize on your investment if you can't even have this guy play baseball? Well, you know, this kind of goes into my territory a little bit. You know, baseball could end up coming up with a system where this goes the way that soccer does around the world. For instance, if you're a young player for Manchester United and you have no chance of smelling top team because, you know, you're 19 years old, you have all the talent in the world, the team sees that. They don't want to let you go, so they're not going to sell you. But they'll send you on loan to a team in the English third division, and you'll go down there and tear it up. You'll stay fit. You'll keep your confidence going because you're down there playing every day. You're down there contributing to the team, and you're doing well most of the time if you're good enough. You know, if the big team's believing in you to send you to a smaller team, usually you're going to go to the smaller team and tear it up. So you wonder if some of these guys that don't get drafted and or some of these guys that aren't playing minor league baseball this year if the MLB is going to come up with a certain type of loan system where we send some of these players over to the KBO, over to the Japanese league, something like that can definitely be ironed out. If baseball really wants to do that, that's something that I'm sure the KBO and the Japanese league would accept with open arms if Major League Baseball is willing to do something like that. But then all their guys lose their jobs. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah, oh, yeah. man, the, the Dinos would be stacked but with American players. So then it's like, I don't know. They, this is, I mean, this conversation really gets you thinking because it just starts to extrapolate and it starts to layer in so many different directions. I mean, what you just said, Andrew, kind of blew my head up because, yeah, once you're drafted into the organization, it's like, you know, once I, when I said, this is your job. So they look at you and be like, yeah, you're playing in Korea. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're playing in Japan. You know, strap up and <laughs> that's where you're going because we have to have you playing baseball and you're not going to be on the major league roster. You're not going to play in AAA. You're not going to be playing. So 
that's interesting. Uh, I didn't know the, those teams do that, but I mean, yeah, there you go. I think it kind of puts them in a position where it's like, you know, you're going to go play somewhere else because we, we have to have you playing somewhere. We're not going to draft you. And then, you know, especially pitchers, right? I mean, pitchers are just creatures of habits. I know the guys can get, you know, batting cages and kind of, you know, stay solid as far as like, you know, hitting, but I think pitchers want to be on mounds, right? Pitchers want to face live hitting. They need that to kind of be who they are. I'm going to bring up Walker Bueller. You know, he came from Bandy, came up right to like minor leagues, did really well. And point is the kid never stopped playing baseball. And then he made it to the majors pretty quickly. So I'm sure they want those stories and those players to still develop the same way as far as like playing against other players. I mean, if there is another league going on and I, you know, true Zach, I mean, I guess the KBO would be like, Sure, send them over, right? Like we, we want our teams to do really well. Kind of a win-win, I think, in, in that aspect. And I think it's a good idea. I, I think it would be a good idea to like offer them to these other leagues just so they can uh, have them keep playing baseball. Yeah, well, that's a lot of information to digest for us. So it'll be interesting to see how it works itself out over the next couple of weeks. We initially intended on this playing on like a two-part bit. We wanted to have you know, Marty answer some questions for us, and then we would get into the first segment of the NL West. We were going to cover the Giants, Rockies, and D-backs. We obviously had a lot of questions for Marty. Went a little bit longer than we expected, but that's okay. We had a blast interviewing him. Uh, it's something that we're all going to remember for the rest of our lives, quite honest. That being said, I think we should just go ahead and wrap this up. Like I said earlier, we're going to be joined by Ozzy Guillen Jr. on next week's episode. He's excited. It's going to be a fun one. We're, we are going to get into the NL West. I, I absolutely promise that. In the meantime, let's continue to enjoy the guests we are having on. It's, it's been nothing short of a blast. I want to go ahead and collect final thoughts from everybody. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and open up the floor for you guys. Uh, just a quick shout out to Marty again for sharing those personal stories and stories about filming, man. Um, you know, we we're all pretty blown away with them. And just another shout out to him for that. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Jimmy. Uh, just wanted to apologize to everybody that was looking forward to the NLS this week. Trust us, we're looking forward to talking about it too. But when you got a guest like this and he's willing to spend some time with us, I hope that his stories made it worth the extra week wait on the NLS. I just want to give a huge shout out again to Marty York for giving us his time to the podcast. He was nothing short of open and such charisma. We really, I really feel like I got to know him. I've seen this movie a million times, but I feel like I really got to know everything about Marty York and everything about The Sandlot, one of the greatest sports films of all time, more than ever tonight with just his time alone. Um, so thank you again, Marty. Shout out to Marty for being on the show. Thank you once again, and for taking the time. The NL West is highly anticipated conversation, and uh, we are fully okay with waiting one more week to talk about it because we got to have a conversation with a guy who gave us a lot of insight to a movie everyone has seen at least a handful of times. He gave us some real insight and some stuff that you learn. You know, there's more to just that 12-year-old actor that we all like sit there and admire, you know, as grown men. But it was a great conversation tonight and uh, more great conversations to come. Cheers. I'll see you guys all next time. All right, you guys. Well, that being said, I'm going to go ahead and leave my final thoughts. Uh, I want to go ahead and thank Marty York once again. One more thing like I said, uh, it's something that I'm going to pass down to my children just to say that I got the opportunity to be able to sit down and just, ha just have a conversation with this guy, you know, somebody that left a lasting legacy and impact on our lives. Uh, and I'll be honest, The Sandlot was not a movie that I had, one of the first baseball movies that I watched. I grew up more watching Angel in the outfield that was one of my more favorite baseball movies and rookie of the year 
uh, The Sandlot was kind of a movie that I slept on and um, I, I didn't watch it until I want to say at least I was nine or 10 years old. I was a little late to the party, but now I see the lasting impact it's left on all of our lives. And uh, just one of the true, more classic coming-of-age films. Like I said, I'm forever thankful for this opportunity. That being said, you guys, we are now approaching uh, 9.21. Coming up, we got Ozzy Gian Jr. next week and our continued breakdown of each division going on with the NL West. I apologize for those looking forward to... Uh, hearing about that this week but like i said this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to speak with somebody who's been so influential on us and i wish you all happiness safety we'll see you all next week good night have a good one